Thank you so much for being here so early on a Saturday morning to discuss whether screens are our enemy. So uh, when I was invited to moderate this panel, I was a little bit conflicted because, to be honest, I love screens. I have no shame about loving screens. I love how convenient it is. I love how we have access you know, to so many things because of screens. So um, yeah, I was a bit like concerned I might not be the most. <laughs> Um, what's the word? Like, I might be a bit biased. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, so as much as, sorry, I wrote this here. As much as I try to convince myself that this show, Black Mirror, is complete science fiction, I can't ignore uh, all these predictions of impending doom that is lurking behind the screens. Uh, so today, let us explore this idea whether yeah, screens really are the big bad villain that we need to look out for. So let's... Uh, Meet our panel today. We have uh, Malaysian story writer, storyteller, writer, and coach Dinesha Karthigesu. We have American author and anthologist Jason Eric Lundberg. We have writer and journalist from Beijing, Carolyn Khan. Caroline? Caroline? And uh, Iraqi Australian writer, Lur Al Gurabi. How was my pronunciation? Good? Okay, great. So um, let's start with first question. So I'm going to go just one by one. That's okay. All right, so I'll start with you, Lur. So there's no doubt that the emergence of mobile devices and online platforms have changed the way that we communicate and interact with one another. Uh, but what are the ways that it has affected the way that you think? Um, I think that, I mean, I use Twitter so frequently. I, like I've been using Twitter for 10 years now. And one of the ways that that has changed the game for me is someone said to me the other day, poetry is saying in two words what could have been said in 2000. And if Twitter isn't the height of poetry for that exact reason, um, then what is? Uh, so it has, I think because of Twitter, I've learned, I've learned poetry from Twitter, if I can say so because there is something about putting an entire narrative in 180 characters back then it was um, that's just magical. Um, so I think I've learned, if I can say I've learned to write from tw Twitter, I would. Um, there is, and there is something as well about the unfiltered nature of technology, especially social media now. Um, like when Snapchat came out, and I remember Serena Williams sharing a story about um, accidentally eating her dog food and she got extremely sick and she just like snapchatted the entire disgusting episode and I thought that was fascinating because she doesn't care it's going to disappear in 24 hours doesn't like it's not going to it's going to last forever because she's Serena Williams yeah, but people will save that and you know reshare yeah, yeah. yeah but that is not something she would have ever expressed on any other platform so to me I've learned that writing can afford to be much more unfiltered it can afford to be much more genuine because um, we can afford to be that because our platform isn't that what's going to go on the internet is going to stay there forever. Not necessarily. That's not necessarily the case. So you can say that it has kind of encouraged a much more organic, much more genuine way of communicating, which I think is excellent. Um, yeah, I, I think I want to add something may, maybe special about China. Uh, I think the internet uh, really helped me to... Uh, get more access to information out of China, you know. Although China has the, the great firewall, 
it's like a like a censorship system, the internet. But still, like if you really want to, you can use a VPN to uh, to to get out of, of the wall to get the information right. So that is something that before the internet age, uh, probably Chinese writers, Chinese journalists would find it really difficult to get that kind of information. Uh, another thing I want to say is the use of social media. Um, I, I use both Chinese social media and Twitter, like China has the, its own like, version of uh, Twitter or Facebook. Um, like a few years ago, I post a lot of like, opinions. Like a journalist, I, I just post what I think, what I saw. Then gradually, well, I think you all have the same experience. It's really a, pl a kind of platform easy for people to pick up pick fights. And that is not something that you wished to do. You, want, you didn't want to do that. But it's a, in a very natural way. Those people, like, no matter you call them, like, well, I don't think they are just a trolls. It's a, it's, a, it's a right word to describe people. But like, people have a lot of opinions. They may not really understand what you're talking about, or they choose to not understand what you're talking about. Then, and even that, like, uh, I think some, even sometimes these arguments are between the friends you know in your real life, but you know that if you meet in a cafe, face-to-face, discussing, discussing, you would never end up in such a fight. So, yeah. Have you ever been in a situation whereby, like, you got into a fight with someone online and then you had to meet them in real life? That is really <laughs> awkward sometimes. But it's like, oh, you are so nice, actually, in real life. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think people should really sometimes try to still meet up in person and have your constructive uh, conversation. Yeah, I have experienced that as well. <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's interesting because the, as you say, it's like we never, we never behave in real life as we do online. And so, um, so it's, it can be something where it's like a really intense conversation or argument and then you meet in person it's like no it's fine it's fine it's all good i don't know sometimes so. i meet them first i'm like oh, I oh really at, i can't look at you the same anymore um i think for me it's uh because uh, i'm probably the oldest person up here so uh so in terms of uh, the way that kind of screens and technology have affected my life it's been i mean my when i was a kid my my first computer was an apple 2c so i have also yeah i know what is that <laughs> Um, so, so I have lived with screens all my life, but in kind of different ways, and it wasn't always as ubiquitous as it is now. And so, um, so for me, it's more of the. Uh, it hasn't really changed the way that I think because I kind of, I, I kind of established that I guess before they became so ubiquitous. But, um, but one thing that is interesting is that nowadays, um, in terms of the like retention of information, just like basic facts, I don't have that as much, yeah, nearly as much that's now. That's how I feel most affected by it. Like, yeah, like so you've got basically the entire, you know, the entire internet in your pocket, and why would I need to remember this, this specific detail from, from, you know, 200 years ago, whatever. And so um, that used to be like the mark of how intelligent you were and how canny you were, was that you could actually recall these facts and recall um, history and, and things like that, where now you can just look it up. And I think that that is, it's become the, especially I, I've noticed for the younger generations as well, I'm Gen X, so, um, but for, uh, especially for millennials and gener Generation Z or whatever you want to call yourselves, um, uh, that it's not as much of a concern now because like, well, why do I need to know this? I can just look it up in two seconds. You know, why are you bothering me? Do you think me? that's necessarily a bad thing? Because I think some people 
like mm. to do the whole, well, back in the day, you know, yeah. I used to remember everything. But that just means you have a good memory. That's not Exactly. Mean, <laughs> it's exactly it, yeah. I feel the same way about quotes as well. When people who can quote um, lines from, from books and poetry and things like right off the top of their head, I don't have a memory for that kind of thing. But I always felt uh, a bit uh, inadequate in that in that area, but it's like, okay, well, I could just look it up now. It's not a big deal. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I'm one of the few millennials who hates social media. Um, and I think it's because I, my relationship with it is very complicated. Like, I feel I'm very clear that it became an addiction at one point. Uh, that dopamine hit of checking notifications, of checking the likes, of checking what your friends are up to. Um, so my relationship with it and how it's changed my thinking is that I'm the kind of person, if you friend me on Facebook, I will accept and I will immediately unfollow you. So you don't appear on my timeline. My timeline's empty. It's great. <laughs> um, I'm also the kind of friend who, if you follow me on Instagram, I am not following you back. Like my Insta like I follow 10 people, that's it. So I'm very, I curate all but of do that. do you, how, like... Your friends, how do they take that? Don't, do they not feel offended? Like, yes, why you not they do. <laughs> I, I have this one friend who's constantly telling me, so when are you going to follow me back? I'm not going to follow you until you agree to follow me back. And he does it on my post. He'll come and comment. He'll be like, is and it time to start following me now? And I'm like, nope, not following you. Not happening. So I think for me, I had to sort of negotiate. I want to delete my Twitter account every two days. And I don't even follow anyone on my Twitter. It's to me, it's archival. It's a way to document uh, quotes I like from books. It's a way for me to retweet stuff because I feel like I have to be in social media because as a spoken word poet, when I perform, um, and then people like say they come up to you, they'll be like, okay, what's your Instagram? Can I follow you? And when your Instagram is empty, they get very disappointed. So then I feel like, okay, now I have a responsibility. There is a system that we all yeah. adhere to. Yes, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm not following the norms. So for me, uh, how it's changed my thinking is I'm having to just constantly decide what is it I want to put there. So for me, um, Twitter is archival. Facebook is to connect with people. Instagram is, I kind of use it as almost like a daily reflection sort of space. Um, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's how it's changed my thinking. All right, so since you mentioned the whole Gen X, Gen Z thing, I'm going to start with you, Jason. What are the gaps that you've observed or experienced firsthand in communication styles between Gen X to Millennials to Gen Z. Uh, is it fair to assume that these differences as something that is lacking in the younger generation or is it simply a part of the evolution of language and communication? Sorry, was that a lot? It is a lot, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, when you sent us this question, I, was, I really spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about it and I'm not sure I still have an exact answer, but I think the, the, the thing that kind of obviously comes to mind is messaging. Um, where I, I still, like when I'm on WhatsApp or texting people, I still write in complete sentences. I so, do too, yeah. yeah, so that seems I to be. I appreciate when people still use full sentences. Yeah. But I'm also like, well, I'm at the cusp of millennials, mm. so borderline, so yeah. I can relate. And I, and I work at, because I'm, I'm the fiction editor at uh, Epigram Books in Singapore, and, um, and again, I'm probably the oldest one there <laughs> in terms of uh, our editorial staff and, and, uh, and marketing and design people. And so, so I work with a lot of, a lot of millennials and, and uh, it is interesting kind of the back and forth in terms of the, like just our group WhatsApp chat, um, just like the very quick kind of back and forth on that. And I'm, again, I'm in there writing these complete sentences. So um, that's the kind of thing that immediately comes to mind in terms of the broader question. I'm not sure I could exactly answer that maybe. Fellow panelists can, but. Um, 
difference between Gen X and millennials? Um, <laughs> I, I think my, my immediate example would be my dad's on Instagram. Um, and that throws me off because because uh, I run a podcast and so he doesn't follow my personal account, he follows the podcast account. And then he'll comment on the posts. And then my producers will screenshot and send it to me. Wow, supportive dad. So it's, it's, it's that weird sort of disconnect. It's almost as if in your head you think this space is private. Like it's yours. So when you suddenly have, it's, it's, your, it's your private space, it's your space with friends, it's your space with people you connect with. So when you suddenly have family um, and people, it's, it's this crossing over of two different spaces. And I think that throws a lot of us off. Like our parents giving us Facebook friend requests, things like that. I usually just delete. My mom literally texted me last night saying, no stories today? Are you busy? <laughs> That's how she keeps up with my life, to be honest. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, so I think it's that. And then obviously they would comment and things like that. And again, full sentences. I think that's a very obvious difference. Um, I think the difference also is that maybe with Gen Z, it's easier. Um, you, your friends are all using it. You pick it up very fast. Insta stories is hard. Like it took me forever to even get to like, okay, I know how to do this now, right? And I am a millennial, right? So I think it's also the, it's the space you're in. Like I don't think I'm around a lot of friends where social media is a big thing. It's a thing we do, but it's not something that consumes a lot of our time. So I think it's who you mix with as well. And that shows you the difference in the generations. Yeah, I think a lot about how my parents use um, social media and they take it so seriously. I think they are a bit more of a serious people. Um, so my father, for example, his Facebook is at the moment full of Iraqi revolution content. And that's it, that's it. Um, and before that, it was about a different revolution. And before that, it was about a different uprising. And before that, it was about a different political phenomena. And that's what he lives and breathes. Um, that's the kind of content he wants to consume. That's the kind of content he wants to create. Um, and he writes articles. Like, he writes these full-length 2,000-word articles as a Facebook status about what he thinks about the uprising and how we should, how we should organize, how we should move forward, what the politics is doing to us. Who is his audience? Other 55-ish-year-old men and women, um, many of them from university. Um, I remember recently he used it to reconnect with a friend he went to high school with, and he found them. So to him, social media has a purpose. This is a platform to achieve what I couldn't achieve when I was 20. And I suppose when he was 20, he couldn't, he didn't have a megaphone. Um, I don't think any person, any lay person in the 70s or in the 80s had a megaphone. Uh, but he does now. And he's really savoring every moment. He's using it to say the things out loud, which he was only saying to us at the dinner table and to his friends. And I was like, well, now the whole world can know my opinions. I'm going to tell them. Um, and it's fascinating. It's beautiful. And even on WhatsApp, like he's sending these photos of little snippets of poetry from the like just stand-up poetry from the revolution um, to the group chat. That's that's what he uses it for. And I think that's really beautiful because um, what do we do once we have an audience? Um, yesterday, someone at the Freedom of um, uh, Freedom of Speech panel said, uh, "Well, now you've got freedom. What do you do with it?" Um, and that's the thing. Uh, the thing about boomers is that they didn't have that platform. 
and now they do. And it's fascinating to observe what they're doing with something that they never had. Whereas we were kind of born with that privilege. And it's, um, it means that we use it so differently. We could use it to um, say the most meaningless, pointless things because we want to vent. And that's our storytelling, and that's okay too. Um, but what do we do when we have a gift from birth as opposed to someone who only gained it in his 40s? Um, I think it's beautiful. Um, so th there, is, there is something that's very organic uh, to us about how we use TikTok, for example. Like, young people, um, I'm too old for Gen Z. I tried TikTok. Yeah. It's a really interesting space. It is. But I'm, I'm just watching. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like kind of similar to Vine. There is a certain talent you need to have for really concise storytelling. It's like flash fiction, but visual. Um, and someone on TikTok, for example, did like a series of 100 videos, each one about five seconds, summarizing the last 100 years in English history. Gorgeous. It was stunning. I could never do that. Um, I don't know anyone who could ever do that. I don't know anyone except outside of Gen Z, who is capable of such snappy, quick, compelling storytelling um, that you can consume so quickly, so accessible, um, non-elitist, just, just from, from the ground? Um, yeah, actually in my family, I think uh, my, my parents' generation uh, the family members, they are the one who use TikTok the most. And they are the one like checking their smartphone the most most of the time. But if you look at their phone, you see like what they are sharing, the information and what we see are quite different. It's not a matter of interest sometimes even. Sometimes it's even a matter of if it is true or not. You know, like my uncle like to show me the articles about uh, how Kim Jong-un in North Korea is doing something great and all, all the North Korean people are having the best life in the world. I say, like, <laughs> but come on, this is like, can you, can you maybe check another media, a mainstream media, right? But like in his group of people, the friends, who, are not tr who, are not, who have not been trained to, um, like, I think as journalists, uh, as a journalist, sometimes in journal, J school, you know, like how to sometimes how to tell uh, the quality of information or how to, you know, how the um, um, communication, how, how it works or how publicity works, how the propaganda works. But I think his generation not were never trained to tell that. And when like in China is the same, the people have a different bubbles and you always share information with people you know in your life, probably who have the similar background as you. So that is his world, right? And, uh, and also sometimes it's like, okay, when people talk about, in China we say post-90s, probably more close to the concept of uh, Generation Z, or post-80s, uh, it's more like uh, millennials. So some people say, oh, yeah, the uh, post-90s, they talk in a way that uh, older people don't understand. But sometimes it's more like, like teenager or young people's experimental behavior. So a few years ago, there's a, a, they created an online language called, we would call it like an alien language, like a Mars, a language from the Mars. But it's like use a lot of like uh, signals and pictures, emojis, 
but they know what that means. Um, but in real life, they don't talk like that. It's more like they're like a little fun, a little game online, and they share that with their friends. So yeah, I think and then one day they grow up, they become they uh, people in the office, they talk very formally. Then they would never bring that alien language to the office, like talk to their boss, right? So yeah, so that's what I think of the generational um, differences in terms of social media. Okay, so um, going back to the second half of my question earlier, so you actually, yeah, you, so you touched on that about how specifically focusing on the language now and how kids nowadays are using all of these different terms and you know, there tends to be, people tend to see it as just like, oh, okay, it's, it's corruption of the language. You know? So um, you're an editor, how do you feel about that, Jason? It depends on the day. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there are days when it's like, oh, these kids today kind of thing where it's just like, just, just write it plainly. I don't have time to, to decipher you know, whatever this is, if it's an invented language or if it's all emojis or what it is. Um, but mostly I'm, I'm, I'm pretty in awe of it, actually. It's, it's something where um, uh, I was, again, I was a bit, a bit too old for leet speak as well. Uh, that was just maybe a few years uh, uh, after, I guess, like kind of after me. But um, so, so even stuff like that I came to very late. And it's, it always was really interesting to me just to see um, these different modes of communication, these different uh, ways that uh, that people can communicate with each other that are kind of within the same tribe, I guess, um, where uh, it can it can be inclusive if you learn it, but uh, you know they also don't care if you learn it as well. <laughs> it's like this is for us. So um, yeah, so I think it's there. There are days when I definitely feel like it's like just write a damn complete sentence or just write you know spell this correctly instead of you know putting on numbers in it and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, but on the whole, I think it's, it's a pretty, it's, it's an interesting kind of evolution of language. It's, it's, I'm not a purist when it comes to that. Uh, and I try to just, uh, as an editor, I try to, when I'm working with my authors as well, I never try to impose my own kind of uh, vision onto their writing. It's, my whole job is to make their writing the best, it, not, not to make it, but to help it to be uh, the, best, the best version of itself. And so, um, so however they're communicating, communicating however they are, uh, their style is uh, when they're writing. I don't try to get in the way of that. And so and I think it, it, it talks to that as well in terms of just general communication too. It's, it's something where uh, I can appreciate it. I can see that, okay, this is what's going on. Um, and it's, it may not involve me, and that's fine. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, Dinesha, so you uh, are a slam poet. And how much does like, yeah, language play a part of that? And I mean, obviously language plays a big part. but in terms of like newer youth, youthful language, like what, what kind of language do you use for your, sorry, this question is a mess, but <laughs> I'm trying to, <laughs> yeah. Do you get what I'm asking you? Yeah. Maybe. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a case for me as, a, as a, someone who writes, it maybe would come if it's say a meme or um, a phrase, like a catchphrase that maybe fits within the context of this poem. But because I perform it, I get to add that nuance. Whereas, for, okay, for example, um, if the term is by Felicia, there is a difference between reading it by Felicia and going by Felicia difference. Yeah. So for me, that has to come into that sense. And so um, because this is memes or like catchphrases that maybe I'm familiar with, like the new OK Boomer thing, I, I 
yeah, I don't see it coming into my poetry anytime soon. Um, but I think if, it's, if I have access to it and I'm familiar with it and I've used it maybe in my head, then it may come out when I write and when I perform. But it has to feel natural. It doesn't feel, it cannot feel like I'm taking on somebody else's voice or trying to sound like something I'm not necessarily a person, like that kind of a thing. Yeah, so for me it's that. If it's in my consciousness um, and it feels natural in that poem, then it arrives. Otherwise, I don't use it. How about you, Lauren, in your writing? I wrote something about a couple of years ago about um, a person I was madly in love with in high school. And uh, they were in another country. They were in Canada at the time. And um, hence, most of our friendship was on MSN Messenger. Um, and that was you showing your age. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. I am getting old. Um, so that was back in 2003, 2004. Um, and it was, it was our entire world. It was our entire world. And when I, I tried to write the story of the friendships that we had and how that progressed and how it entirely fell apart when she blocked me. Um, and someone said something that it, I inserted a lot of comments about like the way she made her status and she had these little kind of cool symbols. You know, I don't know, is it, does anyone here use, has anyone here used a lot of MSN Messenger, show of hands? Five people, <laughs> um, uh, And someone commented that it captured exactly a moment from the early 2000s yeah. that they had almost forgotten about. Uh, and that was someone who was my age, and they were like, this took me back in time. And since then, I realized uh, what I've been trying to do is to capture a bit of our moment as millennials in the work, um, whether it's by Felicia, whether it's the little symbols around an MSN username. I could even see the songs she was listening to, and she was trying to send a message with that music, because on MSN Messenger, you could see... Um, yeah, what, the music that you're playing on Windows Media Player, because that's how people played music in the 2000s, um, through LimeWire. Um, and LimeWire. We destroyed our computers to download music with LimeWire. So it has taught me that there is so much value in trying to make memoir or nonfiction capture time. And so much of our time as millennials and as boomers and as Gen Zers is in that technology or the absence of it. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to work on that. I'm trying to put, I'm trying to treat this technology or the social media as a kind of a character or a setting in the memoir. Um, it's a fun, it's a fun thing to play with. It's a really fun thing to play with because um, I think it resonates a bit closer the way we interact with each other, or when we capture how we interact with each other online, what that means to us. Um, like, for example, I'm, I'm working on a story at the moment about how, as the Iraqi revolution is happening, and it's probably the biggest thing that's happened in my country since I was born, um, people, like 400 people have died already, just since 25th of October. Um, 400 people have been killed. Um, the the Protesters on the streets are not going anywhere. They're refusing to go anywhere. But there is absolutely no media coverage about it because 
Um, well, obvious reasons. The government doesn't want it to happen, so it just doesn't happen. And it hasn't really gained much international uh, traction either, except from The Guardian. Um, so people are only using Instagram to, like Instagram Live, they're capturing exactly what's happening. They're preventing um, false rumors about the protests from spreading. They're using it to organize, to communicate with each other. There's Facebook groups. And as all of that is happening, I'm sitting on the sidelines and scrolling. That's all the power that I have. Scroll or look for a GoFundMe campaign. Um, and that's how I'm existing with it. That's, at the moment, that's my entire relationship with this fantastic thing that's happening. It's just digital. I don't know where I would be without it. I can't imagine, I would hate to imagine a world where myself or my parents or my sister have absolutely no connection. Like in 2003, when we, or 1998, when we left Iraq, the only way we communicated with our family was through handwritten letters, because um, Iraq didn't have internet um, until 2004. So we just wrote letters. And I can't imagine the nightmare it would have been if this revolution was happening and we only had letters. That would break my heart. I, I don't know what I'd do. I don't want to imagine a world like that. I can't imagine what it's been like for people older than me who couldn't be connected in the diaspora the way that we are. So, um, Caroline, we'll start the next question with you. So how do you think society has suffered? I mean, you've spoken about like how it's benefited you, but how do you think society has suffered as a result of the rise in social media platforms? Uh, suffered. <laughs> um, I think the tension, people's attention are so easily to be driven on certain things that probably are not the most important right now for, to this society. Like uh, China's uh, Weibo is like a platform quite similar to, let's see, uh, it's a bit similar to Twitter. Um, and you could see what is the most, uh, the, the events people paid more attention to right now, probably like 20 like ranking rank there, and probably uh, I think like normal in a normal day, probably 15 out of the 20 things people discuss the most are about the celebrity, about oh this celebrity like get a selfie in this restaurant, or she start to date this guy, or oh, there's a rumor about him doing this or that. But I mean like is this. Uh, how should we uh, use the, the social resource? How should we pay our attention to? At the same time, probably there are some like, like really extreme important, really extreme like a violence somewhere, committed somewhere in part of China where people have no idea at all and it's never discussed in the social media. And also, I think you earlier you mentioned that some companies could use this kind of like um, online attention to do something that to benefit them rather than benefit uh, the public interest. And, um, and that is really something in China. And because people like, are so easily their attention to be lit to those uh, publicity events, and people have very little time to really sit down and think about if this really important or what sh should I think about. So I think it's also a waste of public uh, like attention. Um, and there are also like incident, uh, like individual cases where like people can use this kind of attention to serve their own interest. And maybe after a few days, 
when there were enough investigation, enough uh, reporting on this, people realize, oh, actually I have been used by this person, that person. And actually, but people are not so patient enough today. And people just want to give their conclusion, their judgment, without seeing the whole picture. But again, like today, could we ever see the, the whole picture at all? Uh, I, I think uh, I really don't have too much to add to that because that's exactly what I was thinking as well, is uh, just this uh, very attention-based economy, kind of world economy that we're in right now. I think just the, the only thing that I would really add is in terms of um, disinformation. It's gotten a lot easier to spread disinformation now, I think, than it used to be. Uh, just because it's, because it is so democratized and it is uh, kind of everybody, again, everybody has their own platform and everybody has their own uh, kind of method of communication that it is a lot harder to kind of separate out what is, what is nuance, what is sensationalism, all of that kind of thing. Because, because so much of it is just trying to grab your eyeballs all the time. Um, and uh, so it has gotten so much easier to spread fake news, to spread, uh, like these deep fakes scared that shit out of me. You know, it's just like watching these videos of deep fakes is really, really frightening. Um, just how, how uh, sophisticated that it's gotten. So, um, so just things like that and just the speed at which we're also kind of plowing through information these days, uh, especially from my home country where there is just no end of, uh, of, of news stories that are coming out every single day. And, um, and I'm not going to name the person who's responsible for those. Um, <laughs> you know, all know who he is. Um, so yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's that, that, uh, that sense that we all, this is, this is how the world is now, that we all have to be grabbing people's attention all the time. And because there is such a, uh, I wanna say there's just such a, such a pool of, of stuff out there, just a, a pool of information, and that, it, that includes our writing as well. So, so when you're trying to, like I just had a book that came out in October, and I had to go out and basically pimp it, you know, while I was doing all these events uh, for promotion. And uh, whether it was in person or online or whatever, I, I knew that that was going to be part of it. Uh, and that can't, you can't just like write a book and, and send it out into the world and expect it to do good these days because there's just so much out there competing for your attention. And so, um, so in terms of that, that's kind of how I've seen it. It's, it's been uh, a lot tougher. It's, uh, in some ways, it's, it is, there, there are a lot of good things that have come out of it, but those are the things I think that have been more challenging or tougher. I think that one of the negative things about, say, Instagram is this idea that if you follow someone, and if you follow them long enough, you develop this idea that you know them, yeah. right? That you're friends with them, you know everything about them, um, and, and it's weird because then you meet them in real life and you're like, oh, actually, I don't know you at all. I've just, and it's like, if all of these things in your head, like I know your dog's name, I know your, your best friend's name, it's that weird connection you have with people. I remember once doing this Instagram post about, I suppose, the highs and lows of life. Um, and I, I documented, like, in a single post, this, like, fighting with a friend and, like, this really good news coming in and, like, this racist guy on a dating platform. And I went in for rehearsals and one of my actors turned to me and, like, oh, who's the guy? And I'm like, I talked about seven things. That's the only thing you got? And the fact that you think just because I posted on Instagram means you can come to me and be like, tell me more information, give me the tea. 
I'm like, that's not the relationship. This is weird. Go away. Yeah, yeah there, there is something funny about how we feel, I suppose, entitled to other people's faces. Um, recently, I just I did a call of all my followers, and I removed all my family members, except my parents and my sister, um, because there wasn't much choice. Um, like, they're in my life, but I didn't choose that. It's just a blood relationship. So I just changed it to only people I chose. Um, people I would want there, even if they were not related to me. Even if they weren't there, I would really wish that they were there. So I just did a massive cull. And I, how much space do we give to other people to be entitled to our own life? Um, so ever since I did that, I've actually been much more honest on Instagram. Like now I use Instagram stories almost daily. I was just about to post one to complain about something. Um, and, and my friends are so fantastic because they make me smarter. Like I could post a photo of my hair and complain about the curls and I'll get like 20 recommendations from these fantastic women whom I love telling me how they make my curls better. That's love, <laughs> you know, that's friendship. So to me, it is about curating the kind of community that you want to have around you and who do you not want around you? Not everyone deserves, not everyone's entitled to a chunk of you. And I absolutely agree. People do, at the end, feel entitled to know everything about you. It's a bit invasive, it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, and they might even ask questions or make judgments or go like, oh, but you can't do this now. You posted that three months ago. Well, none of your business. Um, so sometimes it doesn't afford us the nuances of how complex our human characters are, um, which I find a bit frustrating. I find that a bit frustrating. I think another thing is maybe not only social media, like the, uh, the wide use of technology, really gave the government a lot of control on people's information. Well, some people may think it's a good thing. Well, if you ask a Chinese person, they say, oh yeah, well, what, what's wrong with that? But to some people, like distance is really a terrible thing. Like basically use the big data, like the government authority could know exactly where you are, where you have been to, who have you talked to, what exactly you have talked about and basically leave no space for people who have a different opinions of people who are in that kind of situation where the government wants to shut them up or something else. Um, I'll continue on with you. Uh, so how do you think that in Chinese society, how has online media platforms actually helped? How has it benefited? Um, well, given, given said about the censorship, uh, etc., uh, I think still, the, uh, if we look at 20 years ago and today, I think Chinese people have much more like, access to get the information and also a platform to express themselves. Um, but there are certain rules or certain lines there like you cannot talk about. It doesn't mean like if you say that you will be in trouble, but you don't like this kind of uh, attention from the authority, right? Um, so, but still, like, people get this kind of um, platform to share their ideas, and I think it really gave people who know in the old time they didn't have a say, didn't have a voice, but they, everybody get a smartphone, can type what is going on in their life. No matter, but we are in a time, there are too much, there's too much information, but no matter, it will be seen or not, not be seen, well, at least people can, can say. And 
there have been a lot of cases when what they said become the uh, national highlights. Uh, Jason, how do you think online media platforms have improved society or helped society? Um, I think just in terms of, I've been, I, I think I can speak to kind of in, in terms of Singapore because I've been based there for the last 12 years. So, uh, so I can talk a little bit more about that than kind of the situation in the U.S. because I've, I've been separated want, from that for a while. We'd love to hear about the U.S. as <laughs> well. <laughs> um, maybe later. <laughs> but uh, I think in Singapore, just because there has been, uh, for so long there was, uh, it was a very similar kind of thing where where the government was trying to control basically the information that got to people uh, to the point where they would be, they would appoint people to the different uh, newspapers and magazines, make sure that you're not kind of stepping over a certain line. Um, and so I think once, especially once uh, Facebook and Twitter got, really got going, uh, they, they couldn't, they didn't have control over that. And so it became a, uh, a much more, a much more interesting place at that point because uh, because, I mean, you know, if you're getting together with your friends, if you're getting together in a kopitiam, it doesn't matter. You're just talking to them. You can just complain, blah, 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 blah. Um, but now they actually had a, a platform to be able to, to say this to more people, as you were saying with your, with your father. Um, and so it's, uh, it's been interesting to see kind of the changes in how people approach uh, information. A lot of people uh, previously, like kind of when I first moved there, um, were even if they knew, like the, the Straits Times in particular, even if they knew that, all right, this certain report that's coming out about, about whatever political issue or whatever uh, government issue it is, it's going to be skewed toward the government, but most people still trusted it. Um, whereas nowadays, I think a lot of people, like their subscriber numbers are way, way down now. And I think that that is part of it, is that they know that they can get the information elsewhere. And so, uh, so I think that that's been a really interesting, to think, uh, interesting to see, thing to see there. But at the same time, there has been pushback from the authorities too. There are uh, there are instances where you know the police have shown up at people's houses for for private posts on Facebook. So not even like public posts, but like just like to a select group of people. And somehow the word got out, and uh, all of a sudden the police are knocking on your door, and um, or even liking a very kind of a particularly uh, subversive post on Facebook. Facebook. Um, not, not so much the policing police at, at that, that point. level. Is it? Do they? Yeah. Are they already following you? I mean, are they already monitoring you? Is that how? That's, that that's the thing. Is we don't know. <laughs> so, so, so again, it's like because that has happened and more recently as well. Um, and I don't know the exact specifics, but you can you can Google all of this. But um, but uh, it has had a bit of a chilling effect now where people are much more careful about what they post or they post everything. Maybe it wasn't a private post, maybe it was just like a group kind of thing um, in those previous cases. But now a lot, of, a lot of people are either they're not you know, posting as much or they're not communicating as much or they're doing it much more privately so it's not as public. So, um, so, so there has been some, some pushback to that freedom that's come. But I think on the whole it is still a good thing that, that you haven't, uh, you can't suppress everybody um, and uh, I, I just wish that they would kind of wake up and realize that, that you don't have to control every little tiny thing, micromanage your society, let it breathe a bit more. Um, I think that it's just, it'd be better for everybody. <laughs> so from, a, I think from a political standpoint, when we changed governments last year, a lot of the information was coming out through Twitter. We were like, you know, we had Twitter accounts that we were just refreshing, 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 because the news outlets were like either not reporting it, confused about it, or just delayed. 
whereas Twitter was giving us like, this is happening here, this is happening here, this is happening. So that's great. I think from another standpoint, um, if you grow up in a country that is, for example, homophobic, it, Twitter and Instagram is a great space to find visibility, to find people who look like you, uh, find people who live lives similar to yours. So it's very good for representation. But it's also very dangerous because Instagram's algorithm is very confusing. Like, like say for example, if I open Instagram Explore and I'm like, oh, cute guy, I maybe just click it and next thing I know, my explorer is just white men. Just like <laughs> everywhere. And I'm like, calm down, Instagram. Just calm down. You know? So there's also that. It's that great representation, but the algorithm is weird and yeah. a bit scary. Okay. So uh, the online world changes at such a fast pace, and it's constantly setting new frontiers before we're even able to establish rules of decorum, which is why you see people acting all sorts of ways online. Uh, so which media or writing principles do you consider to be sacred that you feel must transcend technological trends to be carried forward to future generations? No propaganda, please. I think that's key because um, something that's happened is that when you give everybody a platform, you would really think that with the democratization of media, that that would come in um, between the people and propaganda because the truth kind of has a clearer path to the people. But that's not necessarily the case. That wasn't the case. That hasn't been the case. Um, so because everybody could get this megaphone, the truth became optional. Um, the truth didn't become... The truth is no longer a necessity. The truth is no longer a requirement in order to have a voice. Being truthful isn't essential, which I think is devastating. We know how much damage that has done around the world. Um, I see how much that damage that's doing in Iraq. I see how much damage that's done in Australia as well, um, in the United States, I'm sure. I um, would love to hear more about how that's happened in Malaysia as well. But um, I don't like that the truth has become secondary, um, which is I mean, a lot of media outlets today do st still um, hold their ground to that principle and do back themselves up. But that's the thing. Now you don't only get your news from good media. Now it's not just the BBC. Now you get your news from this random person with an account probably in Russia controlling the US elections, as we know has happened. Um, how, is, how is that a world that we can live in? So that's one. But the other thing is that, um, I mean, we kind of touched on this, how we use social media to perform, which is fun. That's all fun and games. Um, but it would be nice not to lose touch of who we are, if that makes sense. Um, because the performance can be so exhausting at times. Like you said, um, you see someone online and then you meet them in real life and they are not that person. Um, that's because they were deliberately putting on a persona, which is really a fun thing to do. But till when? Till when? I don't think it's a sustainable thing to do. So, yeah, that's, that's what it is to me. I think if we... Um, there were some principles which were harder to break before social media, before it became so accessible, which I think is so much easier to break now, and that freaks me out. Uh, I think uh, media... Ex ex uh especially mainstream media or journalists working at mainstream media should um, differ the facts and the opinion, 
in a more obvious way. I think if you look on, on Twitter today, like a lot of journalists from, let's name the top, top newspapers, they gave a lot of opinions before they went on the reporting. And just to make people think like, you know, like at J school, people learn about, as a journalist, you have to be very bi uh, balanced, not biased. Uh, <laughs> and uh, probably like in the like old-fashioned newspaper, the editor would tell you that, pay attention to what you say on pub in public, because if you say, hey, I don't like Trump, but then you are doing a story about Trump, then Trump will say, President Trump will say, like, how oh, say like the fake news, like the journalists have an opinion on me, and then like how could you expect the news to be uh, balanced, right? So I think um, maybe we are in a time when we should stress more on the very basic rule of journalism, like fact is fact, opinions are opinions, and also yeah, the other day I talked to my uh, my family, and they live in a time. When in China there wasn't the news or journalism, it was all propaganda. And as a young generation Chinese, I used to, you know, like have a no, like an attitude. I was more like, um, like despise that environment more. But then I talked to them and they say, oh, I don't understand today's like news or, or TV or radio newspaper. Why there are so many fake advertisements there? But in our time, you open the TV, you turn on the TV, you would, maybe it's not like opinionally right or true, but at least they wouldn't like make the advertisement so ridiculous. And that was a moment I think, yeah, well, compared to like 50, 40 years ago, are we like in terms of this, are we getting better or we are getting worse? Like today, young people say, well, you don't have to listen to those advertisements, or nobody really trusts those things, everything on TV. But that gave people the, um, um, the solution, like there's nothing you can totally trust, and I think it's a really sad thing. I, yeah, just to kind of you know, dovetail onto what's been said already, is just verifiable facts matter. Um, and, and also just the, the, um, the kind of guarantee of a free press as well. I think that both of those things um, are just super important. And so it's, um, I don't have much to, to add you know, to what's already been said, but it just the, uh, <laughs> I, I do have to say that like a lot of, just because the, just the deluge of news is coming out of the US, I do try and keep up with some of it, but because it's just so much, um, it's, I'm, actually, I'm actually glad that I'm not there right now because I think I would be just a wreck all the time. Um, when I left, George W. Bush was still president and that's how I felt then. So it's like a thousand times worse now. So, uh, so uh, and then as now, a lot of, I get a lot of news I have to say from like late night TV in the US. So from like the late show, Stephen Colbert and uh, um, The Daily Show. And so it shows like that where they actually are uh, they're taking the news, but they're they're also. I mean, they do have a have a responsibility for entertainment as well because that's part of their jobs. But but they are taking the news and actually making it um, digestible and also something where you can you can laugh at it as well and ease some of that tension. I think it's a really important service that they're doing. 
Um, so it's, and I have to say, that's, that's where I'm getting a lot of my news now. I still read the BBC and New York Times and things like that, but, um, but it's less and less these days just because it's just like my, my stress levels just skyrocket as soon as I start looking at that stuff. So, um, so that's kind of a way that I actually uh, approach that information now is through that lens of comedy uh, a lot of times. Um, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, was the question, this, what sacred rules of writing should transcend social media? Writing or media principles, okay. yeah. Um, I think it's important to recognize that likes, especially likes or retweets, is not praise or feedback. It's just the natural reaction most of us have. And I think as writers, we need to keep writing, but we shouldn't use those metrics as ways to say this writing is good or this writing is bad. Like, if you wanted feedback, go and get feedback from actual people ask people for the feedback. Posting something online and getting likes is not feedback. But it's, it's tricky because it's so easy to fall into that trap. And that's how a lot of people measure your value now. Yeah, yeah. so I think it's just being aware of that. But I think also, I remember this hilariously, found it through Instagram, this Gary Vaynerchuk uh, tweet, picture thing, where he said that you should treat good, uh, you should treat praise and criticism with the same energy and be thank you and move on. And I think that's something we feel like when we get the likes, when we get the retweets, we think it's just good praise, good feedback, but it's not. It's just people tapping. Yeah. So I think write, but don't use these spaces as ways to get feedback or editing commentary and things like that. Go to the people who are experts or know better and get that feedback. Okay, um, one last question before we go to the audience. The, answering the main question, are screens our enemy? I think with the, with the screens or without, we are the enemy. Um, whether you have the screen or not, your worst enemy is yourself. And you're going to find some way to use this horrendously if you want to, or not if you don't want to. It um, means to an end. Um, it is interesting to see what people do with a platform once they have it. Uh, but if they use it in a way that they shouldn't, they would have done that with a literal soapbox if they had that choice or if they didn't have the option to tweet. Um, so I don't want to say it depends. Um, but I want to say if we're not using a platform that we have make the world around us somehow better, then we might as well just not. We might as well just cease and desist. Um, yeah, so I, th I think the enemy is, the enemy, capital E, has been there long before the screens. Yeah, I, I don't want to say it's both. Uh, <laughs> I prefer to say it's our friend. Um, I think in different time in history, people probably had a similar discussion. Um, is moving picture our friend or our enemy? Is television our friends, our friend or enemy? I think it depends on, of course, yeah, it depends on how you use it. It could be it's like a beast, it could turn into a pet. Like, it depends on how we train it, how we use it, right? Um, so yeah, I, I'm optimistic. Yeah, I think similarly, it's, it's, it's a tool, so it depends on how you use it. So for, for me, and I, I actually treating it as a tool, 
um, instead of something that uh, the corporations who made this, these different tools uh, want you to use it in, in their way. Um, it's to recognize, okay, well, this can help me in certain ways. Um, but uh, yeah, just talking about addiction to social media because it's uh, like I, I actually basically I still have a Twitter account, but I'm basically not on it at all anymore. But I'm still on Facebook a lot, probably more than I need to be. Um, but just to just to recognize that it is part of it is part of all of our lives now. But um, just not to to have it kind of take over. That just to recognize it is something that can help us um, if we need it to. Um, can I go? Yes. Uh, it's yes, I think, if you can find signs where it's messing with your life. Like, it's the first thing you see when you wake up, and then you wake up reading, like, I don't know, and then you feel shitty. It's yes, if your hand constantly itches for it. It's yes, if it's the thing you look at at family, like, say, dinners or with friends. I think it's the enemy if you have developed an addiction. And addiction is such a big word, right? Uh, but if you've developed this, this need to constantly be connected to it, then I say it's the enemy. But like everybody has said, it is a tool, it's a medium, and it's a platform that could also be used for a lot of good. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enemy if used wrongly, like Lewis said. Okay, great. So um, thank you so much, everybody. Amazing answers. Uh, let's turn to the audience now. Does anybody have questions? I think everybody sort of widely and largely agrees with, with one another here. But I, you know, I, I do think social media is um, it, largely a good thing, but I, but I think it's also very divisive, um, increasingly divisive. You know, it is the perfect tool for provocateurs and saboteurs, as we've seen recently. And you know, our points of view are in danger of being increasingly um, uh, blinkered, right? And, and things have become sort of more black or white. And social media, um, it, 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 it with these divisive, you know, attitudes, it, it takes away um, the space for, you know, nuance, as you've said, and and understanding each other, you know, better, um, and and understanding each other's points of view, and and so I think because it has become increasingly um, divisive, it also um, increases the possibility of conflict, and and I think that you know there's a shrinking. Um, um, space for debate, you know, that respects each other's point of view. So, I mean, although, and I think we have to be, you know, very careful. It's not just in China, you know, Caroline, where, you know, people don't understand what's propaganda or, you know, what's an ad or what's, what's opinion. I think that's true everywhere in the world. And, and, I, and I think that, I mean, don't, don't you think that social media, if we're not very careful about it, um, is actually in danger of, you know, dividing our society even more. I absolutely agree. But the thing is, the reason I say the biggest enemy is ourselves is because even before social media, in Iraq, for example, um, I speak with what I'm familiar with, um, Kurdish people are a minority. And they always have been, and they've always had less rights than the Arab citizens of Iraq. And they've been fighting for an independent state for a very long time, and they've been deceived and betrayed more times than I could count. Um, but even before social media, uh, this is just an example of, of how things can go terribly wrong. Um, they had television, uh, but the only television that was broadcast in Kurdistan was either Bollywood films or Arabic nationalist content. Um, and 
I remember reading a, a book from a, from a fantastic Kurdish writer, Hine Salim, where he said, the fact that we saw Bollywood on the screen before we saw the Kurdish language meant that even India was closer to us than Kurdistan, and we were in Kurdistan. That's how much Kurdistan would not be allowed to exist. So, is it a social, did that not exist, that absence of nuance, that absence of, uh, or that room for propaganda, that room for misinformation, did that not exist before social media? I think it was there. Um, I don't think that with social media we got any less greedy or malicious or evil uh, when we wanted to be. I think we just have another platform for it now. It might be a bit easier now, because then they only had to suffer, for example, again, the Kurdish people, they only had to suffer that kind of erasure from the government and the television. Now they perhaps have to tolerate that from every nationalist um, that, has a, that has access to the internet, and that's tragic. So I think it's just added another, it's added another, uh, or it's opened another door for people to express those horrendous views. But unfortunately, I can't forget that these, um, that, that these have existed long before Twitter. Uh, but I do agree uh, that, I don't know if Milo would have been very popular in the 80s. Um, I think deplatforming him in the 80s would have been much easier, for example. Um, deplatforming a white supremacist wouldn't have been that hard if it was a democratic democratic world. Um, whereas now, unfortunately, yes, every, every person who has something to say has a tool to say it. And that, that's really dangerous. So I do agree with you. Uh, but I think the problem is deeper than what Twitter expresses. Just add something. Um, I sometimes think it's not as bad as it looks. Like we were talking about like how online when we are arguing, like people are very rude and go very extreme. But then if you meet him or her in person, why they become suddenly become so friendly? It's not the person change, it's the way, so the platform, the, uh, the occasion where they talked, that changed. So I think when people are talking, uh, arguing online, it's like your conversation is is in the middle of everybody and it's in the attention. And people tend to become more defensive because it become like so many people are observing you, like whatever, whatever word you say. But if you go like more private personally, then you become like, you, you just express in a different way. So yeah, I think sometimes when we look at the, um, how divided the opinions online are, maybe we should like, uh, step a little bit backward and say, well, it is really reflecting the real world, or is this more like a, a whatever you call it, the performance, or like just a certain ways of behavior? Yeah, as has been said, I, I agree with most of what you say as well. Yeah, it's, it's especially in the U.S. Um, this was this divisiveness I really saw. Um, Again, pretty much when I left 12 years ago, when I left the U.S., uh, because of the way that the politics was being kind of conducted there um, by the Bush administration and by the folks that were kind of in charge of that. And um, this was actually before social media got big, so I agree that this is something that's not just social media's fault. This is kind of, this is also human nature as well. So 
But, uh, but it is, uh, as has been said, it's, it's a lot easier to be divisive now um, because, because of these outlets. Um, and it is, it is scary because the loudest voices are the ones that you hear, and they might not be the majority of voices, as you say. They might be a small minority, but they're the loudest ones, and so they feel like they have just as much import as you know, everybody else. So, uh, so it, is, it is kind of a scary thing. And it's, it's something where I've seen, uh, I, I taught, I was a teacher for a while in Singapore for four years, and uh, one of the things that we taught was uh, like media literacy and critical thinking, these are very important things. And for me personally, but also our school was, was uh, that was one of their, their um, uh, kind of founding principles as well, uh, at least during that time. And so uh, it's something, and I try to teach this with my own daughter as well, is just to never take anything at face value of what you see, is to really think about it. Uh, I was just having a conversation this morning is that it's uh, with somebody, it was like, it's so easy to see just on Twitter or Facebook, just like a headline and think, okay, I know the entire story of this just from this headline and click, oh, I disagree, or oh, yes, yes, yeah, I agree. Just from that one thing now, and it's, we have to get out of that habit of kind of getting back to nuance, as you say. It's, it's really easy to make a snap judgment on something um, just on a headline or just from a few words. So, yeah, it's something that I think it's just, you know, it's a, it's a personal thing. We have to keep, keep doing it personally and encourage the people around us and things like that. But it is, yeah, it is an, an issue. Hello. Oh, hello. Um, my question is um, regarding um, the use of social media with children. Yeah, uh, like from your discussion, obviously it's a complex platform, <laughs> and uh, like, do we? I mean, a lot of parents are concerned about how much media, social media, children use, and uh, you know, how do we regulate it? You know, um, so like, how do we? Yeah. Could, could like control or protect them from the bad elements and things like that, you know. Uh, for example, uh, my child would tell her, don't post photos, for example. It's just so much, too much uh, photos online and as a child, it's dangerous, you know. So, um, yeah, maybe some comment about protecting children or something like that. Yeah, I think in terms of just, just the way that, that kind of my parenting um, goes is that uh, first of all, my daughter's not on any social media, so uh, that's, I've told her that if she's interested, later, you know, when she's a bit older. Um, she's on YouTube almost constantly. <laughs> um, she loves Minecraft, and she's always watching videos of people playing Minecraft instead of playing it herself, but then she goes to play it herself later, but um, she's 10. She's 10, yeah. Um, so I think it's just, it's, it's, I, I'm not going to dictate anybody's parenting um, to them, so it just it's kind of my own personal way of doing it. But uh, it was because, as you say, like the internet is forever, and I've told her that uh, that just because she does want to, she wants to be a YouTuber. That's her, you know, her her uh, her her uh, aspiration right now is to be a YouTuber when she grows up. I'm like, okay, well, let's see where YouTube is in a few years. <laughs> yeah. It might not even be around, depending on how you know technology goes. So. Um, but that's kind of where she is now. She, she watches a lot of specific YouTuber um, channels and that kind of thing. But I also keep an eye on that. So every so often she'll want to kind of sneak off into her room like, no, no, come back out here. Let's see what you're, you know, so I can at least kind of at least hear what she's, uh, what she's paying attention to. Um, I'm not going to dictate it to her. I'm not going to say, no, you can't watch that and you, you can only watch these things. Um, though there are some very annoying YouTubers that she'll, that are very loud and shouty and like, no, let's watch something else. Um, so I think it's just it's a matter of kind of keeping that conversation open and not, not kind of dictating 
as well, uh, because the, the, act, the act of rebellion might come up and they say, well, screw you, I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, so it's just, for me, it's all about communication. Uh, if, there's, if there's anything that she, just in general, anything that she ever wants to talk about, like any subject, I will talk about it with her. Um, I, don't, I don't feel the need to necessarily protect her from things, because I think that that can be, um, that, can, that can come back on you. Um, if they, if they you know, want to go and seek something out, they're gonna seek it out. So uh, it's something where if you can be part of that conversation and try to, try to help them understand it, I think that's more helpful. Okay, first of all, good morning to the panel here. I'm from Singapore, and I would like to direct my question to Mr. Jason. So what I feel that is in Singapore, our society is so fragile that it seems that almost everybody there have so much power to say anything on social media they want, and it has the, uh, it has the ability to like crack the society down. So if I were to compare it to the US, right, do you think that the people there can have enough power for their voices to even be heard? And is it even important that they express their voices. Specifically in Singapore? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think it's important for them to, to express their voices. I'm all for free expression. But uh, at the same time, there, there needs to be kind of an understanding of what's being said, I think. It's, I think that's lacking right now for a lot of people. Um, where you can have these racist groups that show up on Facebook, you can have uh, homophobic groups that show up on Facebook, and they, they suppose they do have a right to be there and to gather, but at the same time, they, have, they can also be called out for what they're doing, and they have to be called out for what they're doing. So there was an incident uh, several years ago where uh, there was this group on Facebook that was trying to get um, several books banned by the, the National Library, and, um, and the library actually did take them out of circulation for a while, and there was a big to-do about it. Um, one was the, the specifically, it was, um, it's called uh, And Tango Makes Three. It was a children's book. It's a picture book, but it was about uh, two gay penguins in the New York Zoo, in the, um, in the Central Park Zoo. And it's, a, and it's a lovely story. It's a really charming, kind of beautiful story. But because this group was so kind of rabidly homophobic, um, they wanted nobody else to see it. And thankfully, enough people uh, were able to find out what was going on online and make a big deal about it, that it became a big deal in real life as well. And so, and there was this big kind of counter protest and there was a sit-in actually at the National Library that I was at, uh, where actually everybody who was there, they would read copies of the book to their kids. Um, and so it was, you know, it was a peaceful kind of, kind of protest, but at the same time it was out there. So, so it's something where I don't ever want to, to quash anybody's expression, but we have to, to, just in any kind of society, we have to recognize kind of what's, you know, what's healthy expression and what's not healthy, and then try to, try to come to some kind of understanding. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Okay. It's on? Okay, hi. Um, I, I was um, listening to Ms. Lore, and you said that no propaganda, and, and I guess my question is, is, it comes in a few parts, but what's the difference between being political and being propaganda? Because I'm, I'm a big believer that all stories have politics somewhere. Star Wars is about you know, anti-authoritarianism and, and stuff. Um, not just in terms of what's the difference between politics and propaganda, and it's also like if we were to write about you know, uh, gay rights, if we were to write about you know, the surveillance state, or you know, write about atheism, um, how do we 
combat the people who claim that that what you know if we write about those things if anybody writes about those things how do we combat the people who say that that's propaganda you know like you know the gay penguins that you know some people did say that you know oh this is you know gay propaganda so what is the difference and how do we i don't want to say fight but how do we overcome that that sort of thing um that's a really good Thank question you. um that's a really good question uh i mean i think on a basic, on a more fundamental level, the difference between politics and propaganda is in the facts. Um, but on a deeper level than that, there is the human element. And that's why I write memoir. Because people can't deny a human story. And if we're gonna talk about politics without the human element, I'm not interested. Um, I'm not interested in politics that doesn't involve the human. And my father always says, forget the politics. Keep the human in the story. It's not about the politics. And the fact is the personal is political. So to me, it's before, it's not using politics um, to talk about the human. It's using the human. And people, if people can't deny the human experience, if they can't deny the first-hand account, then we can go somewhere. Um, so to me, using the personal is, serves the purpose of tapping into the compassion that, pe that I know people have. I know people have that compassion, but propaganda gets in the way. So to me, that's the difference. Does that answer your question? Sort of. Um, I, I, do, I do see the, the issue in how when we bring up a political issue, like even when we talk about the Iraq revolution, for example, there's a lot of accusations that what the uh, people are doing when they say we've been kidnapped or we've been murdered or this car has been bombed, the government has been saying that's propaganda, it didn't happen. <laughs> so that's absolutely an issue. Um, so I, I, I don't know how we can have a further and further emphasis on the truth and facts in the face of brainwashing. Um, what do you think? Uh, just to add on to that, is yeah. I, I, was, uh, I agree with you. I see that, like, I work with fiction, I'm a fiction editor, and so, um, Every piece of fiction is political in some way, even if it's not overtly political, depending on how the, the author approaches the whatever they're writing about in their characters. If, if their characters are all heterosexual, that is a political position to take. Um, so so it is, it's something that you, we can't get, get away with. It's something that's just kind of part of who we are. Um, but I think the propaganda comes in uh, when there's like a single story that is being given to everybody to say, don't believe your eyes, don't believe your ears, this is what you should believe. Um, that's the danger, I think, that comes in, is that, uh, and there was a, a fantastic uh, TED talk, actually, by uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, which she talks about that, like this danger of a single story. Um, and I think that that's what that is. It's, it's this idea that this is the only story that must be believed at all costs. And we, I see some of that in, in Singapore from the authorities, where. Uh, there is, when, when other versions or alternatives are given to things that happened uh, counter to the official narrative, there, there is a really strong pushback from those in authority to say, no, this is the story, this is what you should believe. Um, and that is propaganda. So it's something where uh, it's, there, is, there is a difference there, yeah. Okay, we can squeeze in one last question very quickly. Uh, hi, I have like two related parts to this question. So, um, how do you think screens and social media has accelerated the evolution of our communication, the way we talk and our use of language? 
And how do you think that can actually break apart people or like uh, prevent or uh, erect barriers between how people understand different forms of literature or language since there's more different types of literature coming up with the advent of social media? I think in, in relation to the first part of your question, um, I think, okay, can we talk about OK Boomer? Because that's such a fantastic example of, again, poetry. Um, and if any of you don't know what OK Boomer is, um, OK Boomer is a response millennials and Zoomers have, um, um, have coined. Uh, if a boomer says something that's just a bit annoying, like, for example, the reason you can't buy a house is because you're getting too much takeaway coffee, that's annoying because it's just not true. The reason we can't buy a house is because of a housing crisis, because of the economy, because of the rising tuition fees, because our degrees are worthless. But we're tired of explaining to someone who's not going to listen. So we just say, okay, boomer. And that's a way to completely dismiss everything the boomer said. It's very disrespectful and it's fantastic. Um, it's really, really great. And you could argue that it's disrespectful. That's the point. Um, this, is, this is a way of saying we don't care, we're not going to engage with this because you haven't engaged with us and you haven't given us the nuance and the arguments, the protection that we, you ruined the planet and now we have to live with it. Okay, boomer. So I think, I think that that's fantastic. I think that that's a fantastic way of, that's a fantastic example of how communication now is so much more succinct because we've kind of adapted to how Others might not listen. Um, we kind of formed the solidarity among one another, um, which I think is really beautiful. Um, that's to the first part of your question. Uh, the second part was about... The second part was more, was more about how these differences can actually like, bring, bring up barriers in how we understand one another. Oh, absolutely. Boomers hate us. Um, like, <laughs> that's the thing. Um, if you see an article online about OK Boomer, you get literally all these boomers in the comments saying, this is really disrespectful, and all the replies to that are, okay, boomer. Um, and it's, 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 really cool. it's great. Um, so there's absolutely a barrier here between people born before the 1960s and everybody else. It has absolutely extended that barrier. It hasn't addressed the issue. It hasn't solved it. I don't think that was the purpose that it had in the first place. Um, but there, that's the thing about solidarity. When you find your community of Zoomers and Millennials and you build your solidarity, you're building it against somebody else. You're not building a bridge. You're, you're build, that's the thing, that's the dangerous thing about solidarity. You sometimes forget that what you need is, a, is to build your half of the bridge and then for the Boomers to kind of build their own half and you meet in the middle. So it's a double-edged sword. Uh, I'm just using that single example to answer your question. I hope that, that does it. Okay, thank you for your questions, everyone. Let's give a round of applause to our panelists. Thank you for enlightening us.